evening, it's a great pleasure to welcome back Gordon Bruce to talk to us about Short Brothers before and after 1909. After graduation, Gordon worked at Bristol Aircraft Limited in the late 50s, joined Short Brothers in 1959, and was there until 1979 as assistant secretary or company secretary. He then moved on to Marshal of Cambridge as company secretary and retired in 1993. Since retiring, he's made a study of the early years of the United Kingdom's aviation history, and particularly Short Brothers, C.S. Rolls, and their relationship with the Wright Brothers. He's an author of the Aviation Biography of C.S. Rolls for the Rolls-Royce Heritage Trust. He's a Fellow of the Society, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Gordon Bruce to talk to us about the Short Brothers. Gordon. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, when I asked for this particular slot, I had thought there would be something else between my effusion last October and this, but there hasn't been. Uh, so my apologies to those who come along for the second ear bashing, but thanks all the same. Uh, now we have the first slide up, the Short Brothers, names and dates as there. Now the Short Brothers' grandfather and great-grandfather were born in rural Northumberland, but their father, Samuel, was born on Industrial Tyneside in 1840. Horace and Eustace were born at Chilton, County Durham, when Samuel, the father, was working at the local coal pit. Census returns for 1881 and 1891 then record the family in Derbyshire, and Father Samuel describing himself as a steam engine fitter at the local ironworks. Oswald was born at Stanton-by-Dale, Derbyshire. Father Samuel died in January 1895 at 15 Friargate, Derby, leaving the family in poverty, and that description is Oswald's. Horace had left home five years earlier, and he was then chief engineer at a silver mine in Mexico. Slide, please. And here is Horace with some of the locals. Then Eustace arrived at the silver mine, and after Horace's brotherly greeting, what the hell are you doing here? Eustace described the family's circumstances and said that a public subscription had been raised to send him in search of his brother. Horace handed over 500 pounds, sent Eustace on his way, and then set about winding up his affairs in Mexico. Eustace used the 500 pounds to buy a coal and coke business in New Oldham, South London, which became the family's new home. Slide, please. This is Derby in 1890s. But before leaving Derby, there was an event which was the vital spark for the short aeronautical enterprise. A balloon flew over the house, 
and it had probably just taken off from Derby Gas Works, which were immediately behind Number 15 Friar Gate. Entranced by the sight of the aeronaut, and his name was probably Jackson, the brothers made toy balloons and then visited the public library where they found James Glacier's book, Travels in the Air, on his scientific balloon ascents. So in later years, Oswald wrote that Glacier's book was undoubtedly the main influence which determined us to possess a balloon of our own and consequently to shape our destiny. Horace's 500 pounds and the coal and coke business financed the brothers' interest in ballooning. In September 1897, Eustace made his first ever flight in a balloon, and this was as a fair-paying passenger at the Crystal Palace. Then, in 1898, Eustace and Oswald fulfilled the ambition kindled at Derby when they bought a second-hand balloon called Queen of the West and established a showman aeronaut business operating at fates, galas, flower shows, and the like. Slide, please. The caption here, Balloon Ascent, Teddington, 1898. Now, the brothers' business made its first three ascents from Teddington in 1898. Hopefully, this photograph from an early shorts business leaflet shows the first of those ascents on the 30th of May, 1898. Aeronaut in charge was someone called Arthur Williams, and Eustace and Horace were passengers under instruction. Horace flew again as a passenger at Wimbledon on the 1st of August, 1898, when all three brothers went aloft for Oswald's first flight and Eustace's first as aeronaut in charge. Horace did not fly again, but pursued a separate career, working mainly on a sound amplifier that he had invented. His early work on the amplifier was financed by Colonel George Edward Goodo, slide please, U.S. Army retired, holder of the Congressional Medal of Honor, who was Thomas Edison's representative in Europe. By February 1900, Horace was working at Guro's laboratory at Hove Park Villas Hove, which became the new home for Eustace and Oswald. Census 19.1 records them living over the shop at the villas, and Horace is listed as living nearby with Marie Catherine, née Olivier, a French girl whom he'd married in 1900. And years ago, I met an old boy who had been Horace's best man, now, in 1900, Eustace and Oswald accompanied Horace to the Paris International Exhibition for demonstrations of the amplifier, but they were more interested in the display of French balloons. Slide, please. Oswald sketched what he saw, and this shows a French method of suspending the balloon basket from a trapeze for a tethered balloon. Eustace and Oswald then decided to become balloon constructors by making a new envelope of 40,000 cubic feet for Queen of the West. Oswald always remembered the date of this development of the Shorts business as 1900, hence the title of the Putnam Shorts aircraft. But his ballooning diary, 
which emerged after his death, shows clearly that construction of the new balloon started in April 1901, which isn't such a snappy book title. The cotton panels were cut out at Guro's laboratory at Hove. The envelope was completed on Saturday the 4th of May, and it was then inflated with air and varnished to make it gas-tight in a ballroom at Shoreham. The new balloon first flew at Teddington in May 1901 and lasted until 1904 when the varnish corroded the cotton. Slide, please. This uh, letter from Eustace to the Society is dated the 22nd of March, 1902, and is preserved in the Society's archive. The brother's letterhead describes Guro's laboratory at Hove as their factory, and the front office is their mother's flat in Savile Street, now called Hanson Street, in the Marylebone district of London. Now, two things are important about this letter. First, the left-hand margin, which describes the range of products and services offered by Eustace and Oswald. And second, Eustace is describing a balloon capsule that he has invented for high-altitude research. On the 12th of July, 1904, Eustace and Horace gave a lecture to the Society on this project, and Eustace was elected a member of the Society on the same day. Colonel Guro closed his laboratory at Hove in 1903, and the brothers separated. Horace went to Newcastle-upon-Tyne to work for Sir Charles Parsons, working on the sound amplifier and other projects, and Eustace and Oswald transferred their business to London, to an old carriage shed in London Mews, now called Maple News, off the Tottenham Court Road. I have a letter from Oswald describing this as the first balloon factory that Eustace and I possessed. London Mews saw the brothers' balloon building business develop into construction for sale when, in October 1903, they won a contract to supply two military observation balloons to the government of India. These balloons were dispatched on the 2nd of January, 1904. The customer must have been satisfied, for there was a repeat order for two balloons in November, 1904. And Oswald's papers show that all four balloons had the trapeze suspension that he had sketched in France. Slide, please. Charles Stuart Rolls, Rolls of Rolls-Royce, was instrumental in developing the next phase of Short Brothers' business. The first Gordon Bennett International Balloon Race had been arranged for September 1906, and Rolls interviewed several London-based balloon builders to construct his entry. He chose Eustace and Oswald to build Britannia of 78,500 cubic feet. Rolls then persuaded Eustace and Oswald to leave London Mews, and in June 1906, they set up under the railway arches at Battersea. Slide, please. And here, balloons could be filled from the gasometers of Battersea Gasworks. Britannia was built at Battersea 
and was flown by Rolls to third place in the Gordon Bennett, covering 280 miles from Paris to near Sandringham. Rolls introduced Eustace and Oswald to the Aero Club, and this gave the brothers a firm customer base. Orders flowed in from members at about £150 per balloon, and Rolls gave the brothers advice on which members were likely to be bad payers. Oswald reckoned that 30 balloons were built at Battersea. J.T.C. Moore Braverson, later Lord Braverson of Tara and president of this society, and Tom Sopwith owned short balloons before they became aeroplane pilots. Charlie Rose then engineered the brothers' appointment as the club's aeronauts, and that was in 1907. Eustace and Oswald were soon known for their meticulous work and won prizes for excellence in construction at the Aero Club's exhibitions in 1906 and 1907. In the words of Griffith Brewer, past president of this society, by their skill and care in balloon-making, they raised balloon manufacture to a science. However, no sooner had Eustace and Oswald established their preeminence as balloon builders, then their business was destroyed by the advent of the aeroplane. Slide, please. According to the history books, Eustace and Oswald's only attempt at a heavier-than-air aircraft was this glider, built in 1907 to designs provided by Moore Brabazon. And the brothers charged £25 for this contraption. But there are, however, tantalizing references in press reports and in short zone advertisements which indicate that the two brothers might have tried to build other no-hopers at Battersea. But I've no further evidence on that point. So, just how did Horace come to join his brothers at Battersea? Well, going back to October's talk, in August 1908, Wilbur Wright started flying in France to demonstrate compliance with the brothers' contract with the Lazar Vela syndicate to set up a French company to build Wright flyers. The brothers selling their French patent to the syndicate in exchange for shares and royalties. Several syndicates were formed in the United Kingdom to negotiate a similar deal on the Wright's equivalent British patent, 6732 of 1904. Slide, please. The Aero Club formed its own syndicate, and Eustace, recently appointed aeronautical engineer to the club, accompanied its members to France in December 1908 to open negotiations. Wilbur gave his visitors flights, and Eustace became the fifth Englishman to fly with him as a passenger. And the date was probably, probably Philip, Saturday the 5th of December. Wilbur delayed a decision on the United Kingdom patent, so the expedition was fruitless as far as the syndicate was concerned, but Eustace had seen the future. The brothers must enter the aircraft industry, 
but they needed Horace's engineering skills. Oswald travelled to Newcastle on Tyne to number five Coker Terrace in the Heaton suburb to put the brothers' proposal to Horace. Horace asked for time and then negotiated his release from Sir Charles Parsons. He was last paid by Parsons on the 23rd of December 1908 and that gives a reasonable sort of date for the formation of the tripartite partnership at Battersea. When Horace arrived at Battersea, the Wrights had still not decided on how to exploit their British patent, but Frank McLean was among would-be pilots who were prepared to buy from a British designer. He ordered short number one, slide please, in January 1909, and I will show the order book entry later. Construction of short number one to Horace's designs started at Battersea, and the airframe, complete but uncovered, no engine, was exhibited at the Aero Show in late March 1909. But what Shorts needed was a proper aircraft factory and a flying ground. Here their needs coincided with those of the Aero Club, who were looking for a flying ground. Jointly, they decided on land at Shell Beach, also called Laysdown, on the Isle of Sheppey, Kent. On the 23rd of February, 1909, the Aero Club's committee took a lease of four acres at Shell Beach and agreed to sublet half an acre to Shorts to build their factory. Slide, please. I found this blueprint of the factory in the safe when I took over as secretary at Shorts. It's a prefabricated iron building from, from the Harborough Company, 120 foot by 45 foot, 12 foot to the eaves, and for the 40 foot door. Griffith Brewer, who was a patent agent by profession, wrote in the precise language of patent agents that these were, no doubt, the first actual works put down in England for building aeroplanes adjacent to an open space for use as a flying field. Short number one was moved to the new works in the last week of April 1909 for completion. It was delivered to McLean in July, but was found to be too heavy. McLean wrote that it never achieved sustained flight. In February 1909, things moved on the Wright's patent front. The key figure was Griffith Brewer, whom I've already introduced. Slide, please. Brewer had flown with Wilbur at Le Mans on the 8th of October, 1908. On the 9th of February, 1909, he returned to France and with Charlie Rolls as chauffeur, and the journalist Massag Buist as travelling companion, they set off on a tour of inspection of the French aircraft industry that would end at Pau, near the Pyrenees, where Wilbur, now joined by Sister Catherine and Orville, had set up a new flying ground. I do not know when Brewer 
was appointed the rights patent agent for the United Kingdom, but when he arrived at Poe on about the 16th of February, the right patent was in danger of cancellation because it was not being worked in the United Kingdom. Further, Section 27 of the Patents Act 1907 had introduced new law, effective August 1908, that a patent was at risk of cancellation if it was not being worked at home and an equivalent patent was being worked exclusively or mainly outside the United Kingdom. Now, what made the Wright patent vulnerable to Section 27 was that Wright flyers were already being delivered from the French production lines and one built by Chantier de France was on public display in December 1908. And Rose himself had inspected the Society Astra production line on his way down to Poe. But as at the 20th of February, the Wrights had decided that the British market was too small to warrant setting up a British Wright company on the French model. Brewer's solution to protect the UK patent was outlined in a letter from Charlie Rolls to Henry Royce and also in a Massac Buist article in the Morning Post. Have a small batch of flyers built in the UK under direct contract from the rights. Brewer wrote in his memoirs that when it came to selecting the contractor, he had no hesitation in recommending the Short Brothers, for he knew of their work on balloons, he knew that they had decided to build aeroplanes and had a factory. Horace was summoned to Poe, and Eustace went along too as business manager. Slide, please. Horace sketched a flyer to prepare manufacturing drawings. And this is from his sketchbook, which is now in the Society's possession. And my thanks to Keith Manns and Brian Riddle. This sketchbook is in the display case in the entrance hall. It's on the left of the main door as you go out. Slide, please. Hor uh, Short's order book then carries the historic entry in Oswald's handwriting, March 1909. There we are. Wright Brothers, six aeroplanes, plans, and details. Point out as well an order for short number two, Moore Brabazon, and down here a glider for C.S. Rolls. I'll come to those. That's the, the <coughs> signature of um, George the sixth when he visited Rochester in 1939. Now, since this is an historic document, it's a useful tool for myth-busting. It's sometimes said that shorts were the first manufacturers of aircraft. I'm afraid not so. The car for the 9th of December 1908 carried an illustrated article on Gabriel Voisin's production line in a factory that he had opened in October 1908, and in that December, Moore Brabazon was flying a standard Voisin built in that factory. 
It's sometimes said that the Shorts built their factory in order to undertake the right contract. Not so. The blueprint for the factory is dated the 20th of February 1909, and as shown in the order book, this and the order for short number one, January, Frank McLean's order, those predate the right order. It's sometimes said that Shorts took a license to build the right flyers. I'm afraid not so. A licensee under a patent trades on his own account direct with customers. In this case, Shorts sold to the rights who provided the engines and materials free issue and then gave the Shorts £200 per aircraft for labour and profit. The rights then sold to their customers at £1,000 per aircraft. And this image shows why I was keen to give this talk about now. In terms of centennial, we are now between the order for short number one and the order for the six rights. We are almost coincident with the date of the factory blueprint, and 100 years ago yesterday, the Aero Club agreed to sublet land to Shorts to build the factory. The Wright brothers and Sister Catherine returned to the United States via London. The brothers were presented with this society's gold medal, the first awarded. They were wined and lunched by the Aero Club, and on the 4th of May, Charlie Rowles chauffeured them to Sheppey to inspect the flying ground and Short's production line of Wright flyers. On the way to Sheppey, the Wrights authorized Rowles to order a Wright glider from Short's so that he could learn to fly. And I also remind you of the order for Short number two. Uh, next slide, please. This group photograph was taken outside the Aero Club's clubhouse that day, the 4th of May, 1909. In the back row from your left, TDF Andrews, representing the Sheppey estate, then Oswald, then Horace, then Eustace, and then Frank McLean, a great patriot, and customer for several short aircraft, then Griffith Brewer, then Frank Butler, a balloonist and co-founder with Charlie Rolls of the Aero Club, then WJS Lockyer, an astronomer, and then Warwick Wright, an early motoring enthusiast. In the front row from your right, Charlie Rolls, Orville Wright, Wilbur, Fro Wilbur Wright, and then... JTC Moore Braverson. Moore Braverson took delivery of short number two on the 23rd of September 1909, and this was before delivery of any of the short rights. Short number two flew in late September and on the 30th of October flew a circular mile to win the Daily Mail prize of £1,000 for the first all British aircraft to achieve that distance. So short number two undoubtedly established shorts as the United Kingdom's first successful constructors selling aircraft as proprietary articles.
This is a Wright Flyer as built by Shorts. All six were delivered to members of the Aero Club between the 1st of October 1909 and the 23rd of March 1910. Charlie Rolls took numbers one and six, and he later sold Short Wright number one second-hand to the War Office, which I believe makes it the first commercially built aircraft delivered to HM services. And the Wright contract was undoubtedly the United Kingdom's first contract for the batch manufacture of aircraft. Slide, please. Shorts built two further canards, the Wright's tail-first layout, before Horace adopted the Continental Boxkite configuration. This aircraft, delivered in June 1910, was the first of a batch of short Boxkites. In 1911, Frank McLean lent his short Boxkites to the Aero Club so that four naval officers, chosen by the Admiralty, could learn to fly. The Admiralty then bought two of McLean's short box kites second-hand to establish the Royal Navy's heavier-than-air aviation. The Admiralty then became Short's next customer base with orders for descendants of the box kites and for Horace's tractor layouts, slide please, including float planes leading to the Short 184 class which, in August 1915, dropped the Royal Navy's first aerial torpedoes fired in anger. In 1910, Shorts and the Royal Aero Club moved to a more convenient aerodrome at East Church, still on the Isle of Sheffield. Convenient, that is, for Shorts' land planes, but still inconvenient for Shorts' float planes which had to be towed miles to the coast for launching. In 1914, Shorts therefore opened a branch factory on the River Medway at Rochester with Oswald as manager. More geography. In 1915, Shorts were instructed by the Admiralty to build the R-23 class of metal-framed rigid airship and to nominate a site for the Admiralty to build them a factory. Shorts chose Cardington near Bedford. In March 1916, however, Shorts were ordered to return the R23 drawings, slide please, and to build two wooden-framed airships to drawings that had been acquired from the German Schutter Lance Company by clandestine means. These were R31 and R32. And here is R31 at Cardington before first flight on the 29th of July, 1918. Shorts built a village called Shortstown for their workers at Cardington. The village is still there, and Oswald was always proud that the short name was in a postal address. Horace died in April 1917 before conversion of the short partnership into a family-owned limited liability company in May 1919. Shorts had been thrown out of East Church by the Admiralty in 1917, 
so it was appropriate to call the company Short Brothers, Rochester and Bedford Limited. And this company got off to a difficult start. As I said, Horace was dead. Shorts were thrown out of Cardington in 1920 by the Air Ministry, and sales of float planes, Shorts' principal products, had collapsed when the Admiralty decided that the flying boat was a better marine aircraft. Shorts delivered their last production float plane from Rochester in May 1918, six months before the end of the war. Armistice Day found Shorts building to Haviland Nines with first deliveries in March 1918. And slide, please. And more important for Shorts' history, Admiralty designed Felixstowe F3 and F5 flying boats. This is Felixstowe F3, serial N4000, the first flying boat ever built by Shorts, and this was delivered in July 1918. Slide, please. It was Oswald who rescued Shorts. He realized that no matter what the doubts of the naysayers in the air ministry, the future lay with metal stressed skin construction and that the technology could be used for both land planes and marine aircraft. Oswald's proof of concept was the Silver Streak, a private venture which appeared in 1920. Shorts built a number of military prototypes based on the Silver Streak but until the Stirling, the main application was for flying boats, starting with the Cockle, slide please, and then the Tin 5, which was a Felixstowe F5 with a metal hull. Now, the history books will give you an account of Short's aircraft between the wars, but only the Stirling is going to be relevant to this narrative. I should point out, however, that until the Imperial Airways contract for the Empire boats, there were some years when Shorts survived by building bus bombs. So, fast-forwarding and telescoping Shorts' corporate evolution between the wars, in 1927, Horace's sons Leonard Olivier and Francisco Samuel were appointed director. Each had male issue, so that there was potential for a succession of short family directors. Eustace died in 1932. His children were daughters, and that left the company with Oswald as a principal director. Oswald married in 1935, but there was no issue. Also 1935, shorts were converted into a public company and its shares were floated on the stock exchange. Also 1935, Shorts laid the foundations for a group of aeronautical companies by buying into the Popjoy Aero Engine Company. Short and Harland was formed in Belfast in 1936 as a 60% subsidiary. I'll return to that. And in 1939, Kent Alloys was formed as a 100% subsidiary to cast aeronautical alloys. 
By the outbreak of war in 1939, Schwartz were the United Kingdom's major suppliers of large four-engined aircraft, and they were also significant players on the world stage. Schwartz were employing about 8,000, at a time when Douglas were employing about 5,500, and a little company called Boeing, 3,000. In the space of 20 years, Oswald and Arthur Gouge, his chief designer since 1926 and general manager since 1929, had turned the company around since the dark days of 1919. All of this was achieved at Rochester, but even before first flight of the Empire boat in 1936, Oswald had decided to close Rochester and transfer the business elsewhere. The catalyst for Oswald's decision was the realization by the Air Ministry that uh, political events in Germany made war inevitable and that the United Kingdom's aircraft industry, mainly based in the east of the country, would be vulnerable to air attack from the continent. On the 12th of July, 1934, C.R. Brigstock, a civil servant at the Air Ministry, was instructed to persuade the industry to move to the west of the country. Brigstock reported that Oswald was fully aware of Rochester's perilous location. Shorts then surveyed the west coast of Britain and in May 1935 chose a site at Milford Haven in South Wales and an architect was instructed to prepare drawings of the factory that was to replace Rochester within five years. Now, at that time, shipbuilders were anxious to diversify into the aircraft industry and Sir Henry Harland of the Belfast shipbuilders Harland and Wolfe discovered what was afoot and made contact. Initially, Oswald was unreceptive, but when he visited Belfast, he saw a potential for flying boats and land planes far greater than at Milford Haven. That project was abandoned, and after due negotiation, slide please, a new company, Short and Harland Limited, was incorporated on the 2nd of June 1936 under the Northern Ireland Companies Act as a subsidiary owned 60% by Rochester and Bedford and 40% by Harland and Wolfe. The Air Ministry then advised Oswald to relax on the five-year timescale. Rochester's capacity was needed for rearmament the time scale was now 10 years, or until war forced evacuation. Now, between incorporation in June 1936, Short and Harland built a factory, recruited and trained a workforce, and started to deliver Bristol Bombays and Handy Page Terrapins. Coming back to Rochester, the prototype Sterling first flew at Rochester on the 14th of May, 1939. 
and on the 4th of June, 39, a clandestine Luftwaffe photo wrecking unit took a target photo of Rochester Aerodrome showing the target, showing the short Sterling factory. And that's, of course, significantly before September 39. Brigstock was vindicated when the Sterling factory was heavily bombed during the Battle of Britain. The Ministry of Aircraft Production ordered the immediate evacuation of Stirling production to the vicinity of Swindon. However, the planned reception sites were not ready, so Stirlings were built in a temporary home at Gloucester at Hucklecote. And no sooner had production been transferred to Swindon than shorts were ordered to re-establish the production line at, at Rochester. In April 1941, the flying boat factory at Rochester was bombed. Oswald's office and the boardroom were damaged. Oswald suffered a nervous breakdown and evacuated himself to Cornwall on sick pay. Thereafter, Oswald played no substantial part in running the company, even though he retained the titles chairman and managing director. And regrettably, the documentation and private information shows that this was a deliberate act to block the progress of Arthur Gouge, who had ambitions in those directions. Slide, please. Nevertheless, Arthur Gouge accepted the burden of running a widely dispersed company, but the burden was too great. Sterling entered operational service in February 1941 and was found to be underdeveloped. Gouge was trying to get Sterling right while enmeshed in opening and closing factories. Shorts came under criticism and by late 1942, Shorts as a company and Sterling as a bomber had lost the confidence of both the Ministry of Aircraft Production and of Arthur Harris at Bomber Command. And Gouge incurred a big black mark at the Ministry when he rejected outside help that the Ministry had arranged. Gouge then took on Churchill and the War Cabinet and lost. In late 42, the War Cabinet Supplies Committee was advised that, comparing Lancaster and Stirling, Lancaster's lower manufacturing manners and higher mean tonnage of bombs dropped before each aircraft was lost meant that for the same expenditure of manners in the factories, Lancaster's would drop three times the tonnage achievable by Stirling's. When Churchill and the Defence Committee Supply met on the 14th of December 1942, Sir Stafford Cripps, slide please, recently appointed Minister of Aircraft Production, was instructed to switch shorts to building Lancaster's. Gouge refused to accept that decision even though he was told in wartime speak that it had been made at the highest level. 
Instead, Gouge promoted an improved Sterling, which included features of the B841 Super Sterling, which had been cancelled in May 1942. Gouge was told repeatedly that this improved Sterling was not wanted, and he incurred Cripps' strong censure for his activities. But Gouge was playing a deeper game. Although a public company, voting control of Short's still lay with the Short family. One of Short's directors was also a director of Lloyd's Bank, who had good connections in the city. Material in private possession and in the public record office shows that this director and gouge planned to buy the Short family's controlling shareholdings and merge Short's with another company. I believe that the other company was Saunders Row and that Gouge wanted the improved Sterling as his contribution to the marriage. Cripps had been advised by management consultants that, quote, the existing board is not of the caliber to direct efficiently the present large-scale operations and also that it has in fact owing to personal peculiarities, been a disturbing factor. The consultant's report also said that Schwartz needed a strong chairman and that Gouge should be removed from general management and confined to design responsibilities, particularly to get Sterling right. Cripps, a barrister, knew that there were deficiencies in his powers to force change under the defense regulations, whether that's director's appointments and duties, or even a switch to Lancaster, and that if he were forced to act in the public interest, his safest course would be to take Shorts into public ownership after appointing an authorized controller. Cripps decided to work by patient negotiation. First, he persuaded Oswald to step down as chairman and managing director, effective the 22nd of January, 1943. Oswald, however, remained a director. Then, after horse trading with Cripps, Short's board appointed as chairman Sir Frederick Heaton, an outsider whom they had known since the bus bodybuilding days. What Short's board did not know was that Heaton had been called into the ministry for a little chat on the position at Short's. Short's board then dragged its feet when Heaton proposed that his nominee, another outsider, be appointed managing director. To Heaton, this was further obstruction, for Gouge was still blocking the switch to Lancaster. Heaton told Cripps that he wished to resign, but Cripps asked for time and tried, without success, to broker a settlement with Gouge. Now forced to act in the national interest, Cripps appointed an authorized controller on the 17th of March, and on the 23rd of March 1943, took the Rochester and Bedford Company into public ownership under Defence Regulation 78 
by compulsory purchase of the company's issued share capital. The shareholders did not challenge the fact of the takeover in the courts, but they did challenge the compensation formula set by the Treasury. They lost in every court, including the House of Lords. The share capital cost the government 1.472 million. Oswald received for his shares about 266,000 pounds, a quarter of a million pounds for his life's work, and Gouge received for his shares about 30,000. At a board meeting on the 25th of March, directors were told that the minister now owned the company and wished to reorganize the board. Rather than dismiss directors, the minister would prefer to receive their resignations by the 27th of March, but Heaton to sit tight. They all resigned on time, including Oswald, Gouge, and Horace's son, Francisco. Slide, please. And here is Oswald's letter of resignation, the end of an era. Until his dying day, Oswald blamed Gouge for losing his company, but it was Oswald's decision not to return to Rochester. His resignation letter is from his refuge in Cornwall, and it was his decision not to make alternative arrangements for the performance of the duties of chairman and managing director. A few days later, Cripps appointed a replacement board under Heaton, and in April 43, in conformity with the War Cabinet's instructions, he placed a contract with Shorts to build 200 Lancasters at the dispersed division at Swindon, which was placed under the supervision of Armstrong Whitworth. It was then discovered that Shorts' organization was too frail to achieve the changeover. The Lancasters were cancelled in September 43, Cancelled sterlings were reinstated, and the type remained in production to give honorable service with the airborne forces. Now, corporately, the next upheaval in Short's evolution was the move to Belfast. This was initiated by Cripps in June 1944, but Short's board and the ministry's officers soon realized that Although the company would die if left in Rochester's ramshackle buildings and small aerodrome, the design team would be reluctant to transfer to Belfast. Alternative new locations were, ins were inspected, including Prestwick and Speak. At one time, closure of Belfast was a certainty, but after two years of committee meetings and reports, the debate always came back to Belfast's superior buildings and facilities. It was eventually decided to bite the bullet, and in June 46, HMG announced the decision to close Rochester and concentrate at Belfast. And the transfer was completed by the summer of 1948. The prophets of doom were, however, correct. Only one-third of the drawing office weekly paid staff offered transfers to Belfast, 
took up permanent residence in Northern Ireland, 83 of 249. The big question now was, would Shorts survive in Northern Ireland? Corporately, the transfer to Belfast was implemented by Rochester and Bedford, transferring its contracts to the Northern Ireland subsidiary and physically shipping the work in progress to Belfast, all in exchange for an issue of shares. Rochester and Bedford changed its name to SB Realizations Limited and continued as a 100% government-owned holding company through which government policy was exercised on the Northern Ireland subsidiary, which, in turn, changed its name to Short Brothers and Harland Limited. And that original policy, given to the Committee of Public Accounts in 1947, was to retain the Belfast factory as war potential. Successive chairmen of SB Realizations, all government appointees, were given a ministerial directive that, irrespective of the shareholding, contractual relations with Short Brothers and Harland would be at arm's length, just like any other contractor. So the immediate task facing the management at Belfast was to rebuild the drawing office staff by merging the Rochester transferees with a small modifications DO that had always been at Belfast and then seek new recruits to fill in the gaps. That process was successful and in 1950, senior civil servants advised the minister that the reconstructed design team showed promise of becoming exceptionally good and capable of restoring shorts into the first rank of aircraft constructors. Slide, please. So let me show what the Belfast factory would have looked like on completion of the transfer. From the south, here is the drawing office built to house the consolidated DO, built between 1946 and 1949. Here is the extension factory, built in about 1938 for aircraft components. Here are the main offices, built pre-war. And here is the main factory, built between 1936 and 1941, approximately 600,000 square feet, all under one roof, in bays 100 foot wide, 120 foot, 160 and 300 foot wides, each with full-length doors opening onto an apron which is up there. It's rather like a sausage machine. There were machine shops at the back, at, at, the, southern, at the southern end, uh, then sub-assembly jigs, assembly jigs, erection and roll-out onto the apron, and then for the flying boats, a slipway into Belfast Lock, and for the land planes, a bridge, the Conswater Bridge, over onto the aerodrome. Here is the runway, which was uh, 1,100 yards in wartime, uh, extended in the 1950s to 2,000 yards. 
this is the flight shed built in war years. And here was the Belfast Harbour Commissioner's original hangar when this was a pre-war civilian aerodrome taken over by Shorts as their research shop. Now, the extension factory, the main offices, the main factory, and the flight shed, they were all damaged in the Belfast Blitz of April and May 1941. And according to the figures, the cost of repairing that war damage was greater than the damage incurred at Rochester. So, so much for the Brigstock theory. Now, Short's management mantra was to create at Belfast a balanced design and production unit. That is, the drawing office filling the 600,000 square feet with Short's designs. But in this respect, the legacy received from Rochester was soon exhausted. The market for airliner flying boats collapsed after the delivery of the last Solent to Tasman Empire Airways in November 1949. The remainder of the legacy, the SA-4 Sperrin jet bomber, the Sturgeon target tower, and the Sealand amphibian, they were all out of the factory by late 1953, and in 1954, the Air Ministry decided not to order a Sunderland replacement. The drawing office found its feet in Belfast by designing a series of research types. Slide, please. David Keith Lucas was prominent among the transferees from Rochester, and he was appointed chief designer in 1949. Like Horace, he had joined Shorts from Parsons in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Slide, please. Keith Lucas's SB-1 was the first short aircraft designed wholly in Northern Ireland. This private venture was a glider to test the theory of the aeroisoclimic wing, where control was by moving surfaces at the wingtips. First flight was in July 1951, and after a crash, the SB-1 was rebuilt as the SB-4-powered aircraft with two Pallas. Slide, please. The next one-off was the SB-5, designed on ministry contract to investigate the low-speed aerodynamics of various configurations proposed for the English electric research aircraft that became the Lightning. Slide, please. Keith Lucas's next project was the SC-1 flat-rising vertical takeoff, which won a design competition against A.V. Rowe, Ferry, and Percival. Two SC-1 were built on a contract received in August 1954. Slide, please. 1954, or August 54, really, also saw the recruitment of Hugh Conway as chief engineer. He and Keith Lucas oversaw the development of SC-1, including its first hover in 1958, and its first transitions to and from vertical flight 
in April 1960. Although Schwartz tried hard, there were no production applications from these research types. They remained one-offs, knocked out by the experimental manager in his shed, that did nothing to fill the 600,000 square feet of floor space. Slide, please. In the 1950s, the nearest the Chorts came to the mantra of the balanced design and production unit was Keith Lucas's Seamew, which won a design competition in 1952 for a light anti-submarine aircraft. A production contract followed in 1953, but the type suffered in successive defense reviews and was cancelled in 1957. None of the 25 production aircraft built entered service. Shorts, therefore, had reason to be grateful for two events in 1950. First, in April, when the ministry refused Arthur Gouge's offer to buy the company and merge it with Saunders Row. And second, in June, when the North Koreans invaded the South and put World War III into everyone's diary. The Ministry's war potential bore fruit in October 1950 with a contract for Canvas. In all, 144 were built, with first delivery in December 1952 and the last, a PR9, in December 1960. Belfast also had a civilian potential. In April 1952, Shorts and de Havilland agreed to build comets at Belfast, but the disasters struck just when the first Belfast comet was about to fly. The production line, then totaling 15 aircraft, was torn up. The Bristol Britannia was the replacement project. Bristol placed contracts for 30 Britannias with first flight in June 1957 and the last delivery in December 1960, and 18 of those were Royal Air Force transport versions. Bristol Aeroplane Company bought a shareholding in Shorts, so that from 1954, ownership was SB Realizations, 69.5%, Holland and Wolf and Bristol, 15.25%, and those were still the percentages when I joined Shorts in 1959 the Bristol shareholding passed to Rolls-Royce in 1972. So, in summary, Short's floor space was filled in the 1950s by taking in other people's washing. The design office did, however, make a substantial contribution by designing the military version of the Britannia and designing major modifications to correct grievous shortcomings in the Canberra PR9. The early 1950s did, however, bring good news on an entirely new design and production front. Since the 1940s, RAE had been firing rocket test vehicles in order to write the basic textbook on guided weapons. Folland Aircraft built most of the early vehicles, but when RAE needed a more advanced vehicle called GPTV, that project outstripped 
Holland's capabilities. Schwartz agreed to build GPTV, and a contract was issued to Schwartz's newly formed Precision Engineering Division in April 1952. Schwartz designed, built, and fired 42 GPTV, and in the process wrote their own textbook on guided weapons. Hugh Conway, whom we met earlier, took a particular interest in Short's guided weapons work. Knowing that the Royal Navy had a requirement for a simple missile to replace the 40mm Bofors, Short's proposed the Green Light Test Vehicle to investigate the concept of a cheap command link missile. When the contract was received in 1955, it stipulated that no consideration of any possible weapons application was to be allowed to influence the design. So Short's engineers smiled and designed in a large telemetry bay. And if the man from the ministry asked, he was told that this was to capture the maximum readings from the missile's brief time of flight. In June 56, Shorts submitted a weaponized version with a massive warhead in the former telemetry bay. There was no response from the ministry, but Shorts were assured by Earl Mountbatten, the first sea lord, that they had a winner, and if they continued work as a private venture, he would move heaven and earth to get Shorts a contract. Shorts agreed and 21 months after their proposal, an instruction to proceed was received in March 1958. Slide, please. This was Seacat, which became a world beater, equipping the Royal Navy and 14 overseas navies. In 1958, Precision Engineering Division, later called Missile Systems Division, recruited a young man from the scientific civil service to design the ship equipment for SeaCat, and his name was Philip Frank Foreman. After considerable research, Keith Lucas and Conway decided that air freighting would be the aircraft division's new speciality to replace the flying boats. Their first project design the twin-engined PD-16 military transport, was not well received, but the late 1950s produced two projects later known as Belfast and Skyvan. Slide, please. Belfast, then called Britannic, was selected as the Royal Air Force's strategic freighter in February 1959 after a design competition with Blackburn, Hanby Page, and Vickers. The Ministry's assessment was that the short design met military needs and also had a greater potential for civilian orders, but I'm afraid those orders did not materialize. The Ministry contract for 10 Belfasts was priced by spreading the development costs over 30 aircraft, but the unrecovered costs on the missing 20 aircraft tipped the company into bankruptcy in 1963 and the company was rescued by a government grant of £10 million, whose conditions included 
a requirement for government approval of any future projects. Slide, please. Skyvan was launched in 1959 as a private venture financed by profits earned in the 1950s. Two garrets built in airliner, freighter, and military versions. But immediately after the launch of Belfast and Skyvan, HM government made a decision which bedeviled Shorts for the next 30 years. Following the Ministry's merge or else ultimatum to the industry in September 1957, Bristol Aeroplane Company and Shorts, recognizing their existing close relationship, developed a proposal to merge Shorts and Bristol Aircraft Limited. The proposal included a request that HMG make an injection of much-needed new capital into Shorts to seal the deal. The proposal was submitted to the Ministry in August 1958 and was considered at Cabinet level, but the decision was that it would be inappropriate for HMG to increase its stake in the aircraft industry. The Minister accordingly informed Shorts in May 59, just after I reached Shorts, that the proposed merger could not be supported. A year later, a perceptive civil servant, conscious that this decision had isolated Shorts, wrote that an independent Shorts was something of an embarrassment as a conflict with the technical and economic considerations behind the general policy on mergers. And I'm indebted to Professor Keith Hayward for that reference, and he'll be telling you more about mergers in April. But the perception of Shorts was that denial of merger had denied the company urgently needed capital and also the financial strength that the ministry had preached as a benefit of merger. Denial of merger also brought denial of automatic access to military contracts, thus limiting Shorts to a civilian marketplace which, financially, they were ill-equipped to face. Now, in the wake of the sorry saga of the OR351, that is, the rejection of the tactical Belfast and the later cancellation of the HS681 and of Short's share in that aircraft, the Westminster Department of Economic Affairs appointed consultants in May 1965 to report on the feasibility of diversifying Short's industrial base. The report proposed diversification into materials handling equipment, machine tools, special industrial machinery, pumps and compressors. When the report was discussed with Short's directors in November 1965, an assistant secretary at the Ministry of Aviation, effectively Short's majority shareholder, questioned the very concept of Short's having future aviation programs and then said it could be argued that there was no place for Short's in the British aircraft industry. Slide, please. The chairman of Short's, Cuthbert Edward Wrangham, always was called Dennis, 
a government appointee, was at that meeting, and so was I. I went along to write the notes. The next month, December 1965, was also bleak. Lord Plowden's report on the British aircraft industry said that Shorts had an uncertain future and that if Shorts cannot survive as an aircraft unit without exceptional measures of support, then they should cease to remain an independent company in the aircraft industry. Dennis Rangham relished the challenge. One of his ancestors was William Wilberforce, who abolished the slave trade. And he asked whose policies had brought Shorts to this uncertain future. He then briefed journalists and politicians on his vision of Short's diversified future, a future within the aircraft industry, but diversified by wider product and customer bases. The Rangham vision was not well received by the principal shareholder, but in June 67, Rangham's campaigning succeeded. First, the minister told the Commons that HMG did not wish to eliminate Short's aircraft interests. And second, the permanent secretary told the Committee of Public Accounts that the government had never accepted that, comfort, that comfortless recommendation by Lord Plowden's committee. Sir Dennis Rangham had won. So the minister then fired him because it is not permitted to beat ministers and civil servants at their own game. And when Dennis Rangham left in December 1967, a grateful workforce presented him with an autograph book signed by every Shorts employee. Cyril Musgrave, a government-appointed director, a former permanent secretary, resigned in protest against the minister's treatment of his colleague. Slide, please. While Dennis Rangham was fighting the good fight, an energetic young man, who was also at that meeting in November 65, was reorganizing the company to take full advantage of the reprieve won by Rangham's campaign. This was Philip Frank Foreman, whom we last met designing Seacat ship equipment in Precision Engineering Division. His promotion path through the company had been rocket-like, his phrase. He was Chief Engineer Guided Weapons in 1963, Divisional Chief Engineer and Company Chief Engineer both in 1964, Director 1965, Deputy Managing Director 1966, and Managing Director 1967. Before Dennis Rangham left, two new product lines entered Short's portfolio. Slide, please. Fokker invited Short's to join a consortium to build the F-28 Fellowship. A contract was signed in September 1964 for Short's to design and build the wing on a risk-sharing basis. Rolls-Royce then made contact. Were Shorts interested in taking design and build responsibility for Rolls engine pods? Obvious answer. So a contract was signed in 1967 
to pod the RB203, and when Rolls dropped the RB203, a contract was signed in May 68 to pod the RB211. Slide, please. This is Lockheed TriStar, the lead type for the RB211. In that particular TriStar, is after Marshall of Cambridge had converted it to an RAF tanker. So, at risk of stating the obvious, neither Rolls nor Fokker would have invited Shorts to join the party unless they had complete confidence in the company. Shorts could now set up their own model of a diversified business, the tripod, in which, like a milking stool, the business were kept, was kept stable by three legs, which were not necessarily the same length all the time. The tripod model served Shorts well for 25 years that are marked by a succession of Queen's Awards to industry for exports and for technological innovation. Engine pods, formed part of the aerostructure's leg, the RB211 pod joining the F-28 wing, its successor, the Fokker F-100 wing, and, for example, pods for the Lycoming and the V-2500. There were also contracts, one in open competition, for the outer wings on the United Kingdom's Phantoms, and for components such as ailerons, wingtips, flaps and undercarriage doors on Boeing and McDonnell Douglas types and on the Lockheed TriStar. Slide, please. Anti-aircraft missiles constituted the missile leg. Initially the SeaCat and its land-based version the Tiger Cat, leading to the manned portable blowpipe, which used a miniaturized version of SeaCat's guided system. The guidance and control is all in the nose cone. There's then a spindle joining on the main body, which simply follows on behind wherever the nose cone goes. And that blowpipe was started as a private venture, and it entered service in 1975. Slide, please. Then came the javelin, which was an improved blowpipe with a simpler guidance system and that entered service in 1984. Slide, please. It was followed by the Starburst, which was an improved Javelin. Slide, please. And then Star Streak, which had a warhead of three high-velocity penetrating darts with delayed action, high-explosive charges in them. Slide, please. The aircraft leg was initially Skyvan, leading on to the short 330 stretched version, two PT-6s, a 30-seat airliner. First flight, August 1974. And sales of the Sherpa freighter version included 18 to the U.S. Air Force and 16 to the U.S. Army National Guard. The Last stretch in the Skyvan progression was the 360 airliner, two PT-6s with 36 seats, 
first flight in June 1981, and 28-360s were remanufactured as additional C-23 Sherpas for the U.S. Army National Guard. In all, Shorts built just under 500 Skyvans, 330s, Sherpas, and 360s. Slide, please. In June 1967, the Permanent Secretary told the Committee of Public Accounts that the country had no need to retain shorts to build military aircraft. So when the Royal Air Force needed a new basic trainer, shorts beat down 15 contenders into a head-to-head with British Aerospace. Announcing shorts as the winner with the Ulsterized Pocano, the minister, Michael Heseltine, said in March 1985 that Shorts were a first-class company which has won in a straight commercial battle. And that's not a bad performance for a company whose obituary had been written by Lord Plowden and the senior civil servant 20 years earlier. And 130 Tucano were supplied to the Royal Air Force and 28 to overseas air forces. Now, when Philip Foreman retired in 1988, after 30 years with the company, he retired as Sir Philip and chairman of the company. He handed over to his successors a tripod-based company whose standing in the world's marketplace was the highest ever. The downside was that HM government, the principal shareholder, had not provided a capital base strong enough to support that presence in the marketplace. Shorts were forced to rely on bank loans whose interest charges wiped out operating profit and put the company into bottom-line losses year after year. In 1976, civil service responsibility for HMG's interest in Short Brothers was transferred from Westminster to the Northern Ireland Department of Commerce as part of a capital reorganization which made commerce the majority shareholder. Over the next 30 months, commerce bought SB realizations and also bought the minority interests of Rolls-Royce and Holland and Wolfe in Short Brothers Limited as the Belfast Company was renamed in 1977. After February 1979, the mantra was that Short Brothers Limited was wholly owned, directly or indirectly, by departments of HM government. That was February 79, but in May 79, a government was elected for which state ownership was anathema. After years of it's under review, statements in the Commons. The statement in December 1984 said that Shorts should, in principle, be a candidate for privatisation. 1984 also saw another cosmetic change of name to Short Brothers PLC. The definitive process of privatisation was initiated by a Commons statement in July 1988. February 1989 
then saw evidence given by Short's directors to the House of Commons Trade and Industry Committee, which ensured that the company would be sold as a whole, as a tripod. In June 89, HMG signed heads of agreement with Bombardier, and on the 4th of October 1989, the transfer of ownership to Bombardier was completed, and Shorts was now back in the private sector. The Secretary of State said that Bombardier paid £30 million for the business. Part of that payment went to SB Realizations, which, having finally realized Short Brothers' assets, wound itself up. And that was the end of the old Short Brothers, Rogers and Bedford Company. When the Secretary of State announced signature of the heads of agreement, he said that Bombardier's objective was to develop Short's main divisions of aircraft, aerostructures, and missiles. And that was Hansard, the 7th of June, 1989, at column 227. But just looking over the fence, today's business plan is clearly not the tripod-based company which HMG sold in 1989. Strenuous efforts were made to find follow-on aircraft projects, but to no avail. The last aircraft built by Shorts at Tucano rolled off the production line in January 1993. It was the end of an era. Slide, please. The aerodrome has been sold off and is now George Best, Belfast City Airport. Missile Systems Division has also been sold. Slide, please. So, two legs of the tripod have disappeared. But, still looking over the fence, it's obvious that Bombardier have invested eye-watering hundreds of millions into shorts and are pursuing a business plan that is, in essentials, a greatly enlarged version of the tripod's aerostructures leg, in the main shorts designing and building fuselages and wings for Bombardier types and engine pods for other customers. So, would shorts have survived without Bombardier? Well, back in 1971, I wrote a paper for shorts directors on the place of the small company, such as shorts, in the international aircraft industry. And my research showed me that although the small company could achieve great things, in the longer term, the probable outcome would be bankruptcy or absorption into a larger unit. When I was preparing this, I tested that prediction against what had happened to the consortium that Shorts had joined to build the Fokker F-28. Fokker went bust in 1996. VFW were absorbed by MBB in 1981. And Shorts are now part of Bombardier. That process continued. When Shorts were seeking partners to build the FJX airliner, they were talking with de Havilland Canada, but they were absorbed by Boeing, before transfer to Bombardier. Shorts were also talking with MBB until they 
were absorbed by the German group DAS. So now convinced that I had the gift of prophecy in 1971, I remembered that I had ended my paper by quoting the statesman Edmund Burke, who wrote over 200 years ago, a state without the means of some change is without the means of its conservation. In other words, be prepared to change or die. But change has always been part of Short's business. They've said goodbye to balloons, airships, float planes, bus bodies, flying boats, and more recently, missiles and complete aircraft. Moreover, the world has changed around Short's. The Brazilian company Ambreo was established in 1969, but when I noted them in 1971, I would have thought it bizarre that Schwartz would be building the Ulsterized Tucano in 1985, and with every respect to Bombardier, their name does not appear in the aerospace vocabulary until 1986 when they bought Canada. Now, Bombardier are the world's third largest manufacturer of civilian aircraft, and by a process of change and achievement, shorts are a key part of that group. Slide, please. I joined this industry in 1956 with Bristol Aircraft at Filton. In those days, the Britannia production manager at Filton was a larger-than-life Australian called Donald Stanley Stewart. And Don Stewart was highly critical of the rate at which Shorts were building Britannia. And when I told him that I was joining Shorts, he said, I won't do the accent, but he said, Shorts say that they were the first manufacturers of aircraft in the world, and the rate they are building Britannia they will certainly be the last. <laughs> Chairman, Don Stewart's prophecy was wrong in respect of complete aircraft, but entirely correct in respect of staying power. As shorts go into their second century, I am sure they will repay Bombardier's confidence and give the rest of the industry a damn good run for their money. Thank you, Chairman. Gordon, thank you so much for a magnificent sweep through the history of a great company. Um, we have time for some questions. Um, we have two microphones, if people with them. Uh, Barry? Yeah. Um, if you have questions, could you show a hand and we'll get a microphone to you. Could you say who you are? Uh, Centre. My name is William Hitto. And uh, you didn't mention too much about uh, the Sunderland Flying Boat, which was uh, quite important for BOAC, who I used to work for in the, in the Far East, in Karachi. Oh, th th this is quite true. Um, I had to limit myself yes. 
I, I've got 100 years to cover. Over, over 100 years to cover. So I therefore used the phrase that, um, you know, if you want the history of the aircraft, then it's in the history books. Uh, I s simply took what I thought were the key events in the corporate growth of the company, uh, and this simply meant using aircraft as way markers, if you like, rather than uh, considering the merits or demerits of the aircraft, except in the case of Sterling, which um, played a rather malign influence in the development of the company. Um, John King, to what extent have the archives of Shorts survived? I wish I knew the complete answer to that. Um, when the company moved to Belfast, um, they took over only material relevant to current contracts. So I'm quite convinced that a lot of the archive material relating to the early aircraft between the wars aircraft was either dumped or it was lost during the war. When it was put into air, air raid shelters, tunneled into the chalk at Rochester, and when they went to recover the records after the war, they were found to be covered in mildew and were thrown out. Uh, a small amount survived. Uh, the order book was bought in my time from a collector in the US of A. Uh, you saw um, the uh, extract from the order book. You saw the um, blueprint of the factory. But this is minimal survival. Uh, the chief draftsman has a uh, Short's drawing of the right flyer. Uh, but what has happened to that archive since I left in 1979? Frankly, I don't know. There was thought, or I heard a rumor, that the photo air archive was to be transferred to the Ulster Transport Museum. But the documentation bit Frankly, I just do not know. Have the board minutes survived? Sorry? Have the board minutes survived? Again, I wish I knew. Um, certainly, I, I was secretary of Short Brothers and Harland Limited, later Short Brothers Limited. I was also secretary of SB Realizations Limited, and my board minutes then, and all the statutory books that go with it, went all the way back to 1919. And of course I was keeping those minute books and the share registers all the way up to 1979. They would needed to have survived until the company, well, the old Rochester and Bedford company was wound up in 1991. Now, it was wound up by a firm of accountants called Cork Gully the statutory books, minute books, etc., would have gone into the possession of Cork Gully for the winding up, but I do not know if they have survived. And I'm afraid there was a time when um, shorts were simply not answering historic questions, so we can't really get a definitive answer. Could I... Um 
come back on some of the archive questions. Peter Elliott from the Royal Air Force Museum. A small uh, number of fragments, if you like, have come into our collection um, through various people, I think, from Belfast. Uh, no names, no pack drill. Um, from recollection, there are a few, and I mean a couple of dozen, perhaps, um, Sunderland drawings, mostly details. Uh, a few, um, I don't think there are any complete type records for some of the flying boats, and about a dozen photograph albums, most of which I think are of um, the company um, activities in Belfast. But uh, the vast majority of the um, company archive does seem to have gone either through um, decay during the war or uh, perhaps disposed of by the, um, the, the by Court Gully when the firm was wound up. Um, Norma Crow, um, local studies librarian from Medway Archives and Short Brothers Commemoration Society. Um, we do have plans of various factories, um, not only the Rochester, but also Windermere um, and uh, Swindon, and also photograph albums. Um, uh, the plan, uh, the application to build at Rochester in our archives and various other material, copies of general arrangement drawings too. Uh, I have no internal photographs other than those that have been published. There was a the Society's History of Rochester Aerodrome, which showed the Stirling factory being built uh, in the mid-1930s. That was, in fact, built uh, at Air Ministry cost, because uh, Shorts had refused to fund it. Um, curiously... Um, I have site plans of the Rochester factories and Rochester area, which, believe me, I got at the public record office earlier this morning. Uh, I've no, and I don't know of, any architect's drawings for you know, construction. These are simply site plans. Uh, if you want to see them later, fine. But that sort of thing, um, Shorts wouldn't have needed uh, after the transfer to Belfast. Internal arrangement uh, drawings of the factories would have gone to the companies who moved into that site uh, on the waterfront at uh, Rochester and also on the aerodrome and also at places like Strood and places like that. Uh, these passed into Board of Trade uh, control and were developed as industrial estates. So I would think that uh, any like internal arrangement drawings of the factories would, would now be well lost. There was no need for them to be transferred to Belfast. Um, they were, they're not all lost. We do have them. Yes. Sorry, at I, I can't... We we have them at Medway Archives office. Okay. They uh, the a collection was left um, in the buildings at Rochester, and uh, were taken over by C A V, and Lucas Diesel 
moved off the site. Uh, a contractor who had worked as an electrical contractor um, for Lucas Diesel for many years rang me up and said, I have a, a, a filing cabinet which will be of interest to you. Um, would you like to come and collect these things before they're thrown away? Oh, and it contained these plans and photographs. So we do have them. Oh, good. Which is good, isn't it? Uh, thank you. David Hyde, a short admirer for many years. Uh, thank you, Mr. Bruce, for a, a wonderful uh, review of many things that I su suspect many of us didn't know. But there is, although I take your point that you weren't giving us a catalogue of aeroplanes, there was one that I was very surprised you didn't mention, which I would have thought was central to um, discussions at, in, in the corporate sense for quite a time. That was the short sperrin. I wonder if you could comment on that, please. Yes. Um, latter years of the war, Shorts had a ministry contract to study high-speed jet bombers. And they came up with various configurations, which, in the way project drawings developed, became the Sperrin, or the SA-4 as a design number, um, and it wasn't until the very last minute that the Sperron acquired its trademark, bunked engines. A contract was placed with Shorts at Rochester for two Sperrons and test specimens and all the rest of the rubbish. Uh, and that was one of the contracts transferred to Belfast. It was after that contract had been placed, that the contract was placed for the V-bombers. And on the day the um, V-bomber contracts were placed, uh, for the sake of argument that that decision was taken in the morning, the same people then reconvened after lunch and said, what are we going to do about the short SA-4? And the decision was to keep that on contract as an insurance against the failure of the three V-bombers to that very ambitious specification. After a certain length of time, it was realized that George Edwards' rather conservative valiant would be a better insurance than Stemmer or SA-4. So Valiant was then designated as the insurance aircraft. That left the ministry with the question, what shall we do with the two Sperrins, SA-4s, that are being built? And after a certain amount of deliberation, and cancellation was on the cards by some ministry papers I'd read, uh, it was decided to continue with their manufacture, but to use them in the research role, uh, you know, high-speed bomb dropping of blue Danube shapes, uh, bomb aiming devices, radars, etc., etc. And that decision was taken before first flight of any or either of the SA-4 Sperrins. So it became very much a man management thing at Belfast to announce to the 
design team that their most advanced project was not to go into production, but was to be limited to this research role. And, you know, qu question, can one criticize the ministry for taking that decision? But uh, I, I did, in fact, mention the SA4 as part of the legacy obtained from Rochester, but it, you know, that was out at the factory in no time and did nothing to fill in the 600,000 square feet. Just a brief addition to the um, archive thing. I'm Peter Davison, independent researcher. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to Belfast about four years ago looking at the SC1 records. And there is, in fact, a quite a considerable archive with uh, Bombardier at Belfast and a good photo record. I don't think it goes back very early. I was particularly looking at the 50s. Um, but it also includes some very interesting conceptual work, um, including, uh, from what I remember, a tea-tailed uh, Belfast which was obviously part of the thing that led to the 681 and their partnership in that. Um, some interesting VTOL designs, lots of concept material, and quite thorough flight records, certainly on the SC-1 and I think on the Sherpa, some of which I copied mm -hmm. for future use. Um, but there were certainly photo albums of most of those uh, test types of that time, um, which would give you a, a, a pretty broad spectrum of the, the flight programs albeit that they were test aeroplanes that may have only flown you know, under 100 times. Um, so there is stuff there, and I know the gentleman who looks after it is in regular contact with the Ulster Aviation Society, and their people have people who work on the shop floor um, and in management at mm. Bombardier. So my guess is that the safety net is there should the management decide to you know, free up another building and uh, ask for it to be moved out. So hopefully there is a safety net for that material. But I can't speak for the stuff that's earlier than that. Well, I think that safety net would refer to aircraft designed in Belfast, Keith Lucas's SB1 onward. I think earlier questioners, when talking about Short's archive, had in mind the aircraft designed and built at Rochester. Now, those are the drawings, documents, contract correspondence, da-da-di-da-di-da-di-da that I'm very sure have been lost and that any survivals which went over to Belfast simply went over as um, privately souvenired copies. I mean, for example, there was a type record for the Empire boats or a partial type record that someone had taken over as personal interest because clearly in 1946-47 the Empire boats were passé and this was discovered, covered in dust, on top of a cupboard. It had been brought over by someone, flung up there when, when he wanted more space, forgotten. And it was discovered in time, uh, can't remember the, the name of the author, but he wrote a book on the empire, the age of the empire boats. And that, to him, was a major discovery this partial type record found on top of a cupboard. There was no, if you like, formal design office filing for it, as there is for your designed in Belfast material. Uh, I'm afraid there was also an episode when um, the chief designer was presented with a capital expenditure authority to um, 
build a new drawing of the store, and you said, I'm not signing this, what have you got in the existing store? And there was a reply of what it was. It came the answer, well, we're not going to do that again. Sling it out. Create the space there. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Bruce, for a very most uh, thorough account. Uh, I'd just like to ask you, my name's Hugh Wilson, and I spent some time with Shorts and uh, with Canadair and with Learjet after Bombardier bought the latter two, and um, I did benefit from their mantra of buying sound companies personally. I just wondered, because I would imagine you were quite close to it at the time, what part the, the excellent FJX airliner project well, played? Well, the FJX is after my time. Okay. I simply know of it uh, as a competitor with the developed Challenger that was in Bombardier's portfolio when they took over Canada. And uh, one of the first decisions at the takeover in 1989 that Bombardier had to make was which one do we run with? Is it the FJX or the developed Canada? And they opted for the developed Challenger. And now, of but course, all of that happened years after I left office. Yes. But it's Ten interesting if you look at the C series, the projected C series um, airliner that Bombardier hopes to formally launch very soon. How close it is to that FJX um, design of all those years ago. In Belfast, was an equal opportunity employer at a time when there was undoubtedly discrimination well, I, as I said, I, I joined Shorts in April 1959, and I was then personal assistant to the production director, Bob Harvey. And one of the first things that Bob Harvey told me in April 59 is that we are an equal opportunity employer. Now, that was a very advanced phrase in the UK generally for 1959. And he said, well, I, Bob Harvey, appointed the first Roman Catholic foreman in the Northern Ireland engineering industry. And that foreman is now a superintendent. He was a wee red-faced man called Eddie McDonald. And... Uh, this then extended. They were, as I say, equal opportunity. But I'm afraid that when the so-called troubles erupted in 1969, uh, the Roman Catholic employees were not really minded to go through Protestant East Belfast to get to their work. Uh, and they started to leave. Uh, th this was really a traumatic time. The city was divided into two bits. I was perfectly happy walking around East Belfast, but I would have been profoundly unhappy walking around the Falls Road area 
so that I can well understand the thinking of the Schwartz employees who um, decided to leave. But when Schwartz uh, were tendering for the um, US contracts on the C-23 version of the Sherpa, they, their employment practices were assessed by the US government who reported that there was nothing sectarian in Short's recruitment procedures. And that same verdict was reached by the Tavistock Institute of Personnel Management in this country. So in that respect, uh, as Kit says, uh, Short's hands have been entirely clean and entirely innovative in matters of recruitment policy, but uh, because of external circumstances, the numbers of Roman Catholic employees fell. Well, this is the second time, I think, in three months that I've thanked Gordon for an excellent run through Short Brothers, um, and he has not failed to disappoint, as ever. Uh, I think most people have, have voiced some of their credit from the floor, so I won't uh, hold you for too much longer doing it. One thought that springs to mind is that from the early days, uh, there were three legs on the stool that kept Short stable, which were the three brothers. Um, and then, as we've heard, in later years, there were three um, legs on the stool keeping it stable while they diversified and spread into different industries. What seems to have been the problem is whenever there was a fourth leg called HM government, it was always longer than the other three, and therefore the thing was completely unstable. Um, he has taken us through... Uh, development of aviation manufacturing in a way um, that just shows how close he's been to the subject and how well researched and how thorough he's been in family history and all sorts of geographic researches as well as in the, the straight industrial history. Um, and I think it's a testament to his thoroughness that we've had the benefit of sharing that knowledge with him tonight. I'd like you all to uh, thank him in the usual way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.